0: Chapter Twenty Three of the Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, Translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter Twenty Three A few moments afterwards, Karl re-entered with a letter of which the writing was unknown to Consuelo, and the contents nearly as follows. I leave you, perhaps never to see you again, and I give up three days which I could still pass near you, three days which I may never recover in my life. I give them up voluntarily. It is my duty. Some day you will appreciate the holiness of my sacrifice. Yes, I love you, I love you passionately, I also. Yet I do not know you any better than you know me. Do not, therefore, feel in any manner obliged by what I have done for you. I obeyed superior orders. I accomplished my duty. Think only of the love I bear to you, and which I cannot prove except by leaving you. That love is as violent as it is respectful. It will be as lasting as it was sudden and unreflecting. I have hardly seen your features. I know nothing of your life, but I have felt that my soul belongs to you and that I can never take it back. Were your past life as stained as your brow is pure, you would be none the less respectable and dear to me. I depart with my heart full of pride, of joy, and of bitterness. You love me. How shall I endure the idea of losing you? If the terrible will which disposes of you and of me condemn me to it, I know not. At this moment, I cannot be unhappy in spite of my fear. I am too much intoxicated with your love and mine to suffer. Were I to seek for you in vain all my life, I should not lament having met you and having experienced in a kiss from you a happiness which will leave me eternal regrets. Neither could I give up the hope of again finding you one day, and were it but for an instant, should I never have any other testimony of your love than that kiss, so holily given and returned, I should still be happier than I was before knowing you. And now, sainted maiden, poor troubled soul, Recall without shame and without fear the shortened divine moments in which you felt my love pass into your heart. You have said it, love comes to us from God and it does not depend upon us to repress or enkindle it against his will. Were I unworthy of you, the sudden inspiration which compelled you to reply to my embrace would not be any the less celestial. But the providence which protects you was not willing that the treasure of your affection should fall upon the mud of a selfish and cold heart. If I were ungrateful, it would be in you only a noble instinct misled, only a holy inspiration lost. I adore you, and whatever I may be otherwise, you have not been deceived in thinking that you were beloved. You have not been profaned by the beatings of my heart by the support of my arm, by the breath of my lips. Our mutual confidence, our blind faith, our imperious impulse carried us in an instant to the sublime abandonment which a long passion sanctifies. I know well that there is something fearful in that fatality which has impelled us towards each other, but it is the finger of God you know. We cannot but recognize it. I carry with me this terrible secret. Keep it also. Do not trust it to anyone. Beppo would not comprehend it, perhaps, whoever that friend may be. I alone can respect you in your folly and venerate you in your weakness, since that weakness and that folly are also mine. Adieu. Perhaps this is an eternal adieu, and yet I am free in the eyes of the world and it seems to me that you are so likewise. I can love only you, and I see clearly that you do not love another. But our lot is no longer in our hands. I am bound by eternal oaths, and you doubtless will soon be. At least, you are in the power of the invisibles, and it is a power without appeal. Adieu, then, my heart is bursting, but God will give me strength to accomplish the sacrifice, and one still more terrible, if there be such. Adieu, adieu, oh great God, have pity on me. This letter without signature was written with a painful or a disguised hand. Karl cried Consuelo pale and trembling. Was it indeed the Chevalier who gave you this? Yes, Signora. And did he write it himself? Yes, Senora, and not without difficulty. His right hand is wounded. Wounded, Carl? Seriously? Perhaps. The wound is a deep one, though he does not seem to care for it. But how did he wound himself thus? Last night, at the moment when we were changing horses before reaching the frontier. The shaft horse tried to run away before the postillion was in his saddle. You were alone in the carriage. The postilion and I were some steps off. The chevalier stopped the horse with the strength of a devil and the courage of a lion, for it was a terrible animal. Oh, yes, I felt some violent shocks, but you told me it was nothing, "'I had not seen that monsieur the chevalier "'had the back of his hand torn by one of the harness buckles. "'Always for me. "'And tell me, Carl, has the chevalier left this house?' "'Not yet, Signora, but his horse is being saddled "'and I have just strapped his portmanteau. "'He says that you have nothing to fear now "'and that the person who is to replace him has already arrived. "'I hope we shall soon see him again.' "'for I should be very sorry if it were otherwise. "'Still, he will not bind himself to anything, "'and to all my questions he answers, perhaps. Karl, where is the chevalier?' "'I do not know, Signor. "'His chamber is on that side. "'Do you wish me to tell him from you?' "'Tell him nothing. I will write to him. "'No.' "'Tell him that I wish to thank him, to see him an instant, only to press his hand. "'Now be quick. I feel he may have gone.' Carl went out, and Consuelo immediately regretted having given him this message. She said to herself that if the Chevalier had never approached her during the journey, except in cases of absolute necessity— "'It was doubtless only because he had bound himself on that point "'to those strange and redoubtable invisibles. "'She resolved to write to him, "'but hardly had she traced and already effaced some words "'when a slight noise made her raise her eyes. "'Then she saw pushed aside a wooden panel "'which made a secret door of communication "'between the cabinet in which she had already written "'and the next chamber, doubtless, "'that which the chevalier occupied. "'The panel did not, however, open any further "'than was necessary for the passage of a gloved hand, "'which seemed to call that of Consuelo. "'She rushed forward and seized that hand, saying, "'The other hand, the wounded hand.' "'The unknown concealed himself behind the panel "'so that she could not see him. "'He extended his right hand, which Consuelo clasped in hers.' And hurriedly, unwinding the bandage, she saw the wound, which was really deep. She carried it to her lips, and then bound it up in her handkerchief. Then taking from her bosom the little filigree cross, which she superstitiously cherished, she placed it in that beautiful hand, the whiteness of which was heightened by the purple of the blood. Here, said she, this is what I have most precious in the world. It is my inheritance from my mother, my amulet, which I have always kept. I have never loved anyone so much as to confide this treasure to him. Keep it until I meet you again. The unknown drew Consuelo's hand behind the panel, which concealed him, and covered it with kisses and with tears. Then, at the sound of Carl's footsteps, coming to his chamber to fulfill his message, he pushed it back and hurriedly closed the opening. Consuelo heard the noise of a lock. She listened, in vain hoping to catch the sound of the voice of the unknown. He spoke in a low tone, or had withdrawn. Carl returned to Consuelo in a few moments. "'He is gone, senor,' said he sadly, gone without wishing to bid you farewell.' and filling my pockets with I not know how many ducats for the unforeseen necessities of your journey, as he says, since the regular expenses are at the charge of those, at the charge of God, or at the devil, no matter which. There is here a little man in black who does not open his mouth, except to give orders in a clear and dry tone, and who does not please me the least in the world. It is he "'Who takes the place of the chevalier? "'And I shall have the honor of his company upon the box, "'which does not promise me a very cheerful conversation. "'Poor chevalier! "'Heaven grant he may be restored to us.' "'But are we obliged to follow this little man in black?' "'We can't be more so, senor. "'The chevalier made me swear to obey him as I would himself. "'Come, senor, here is your dinner.' You must not reject it. It looks good. We start at nightfall, not to stop again until it shall please God or the devil, as I said just now. Consuelo, dejected and disheartened, no longer listened to Carl's chat. She cared nothing about her journey or her new guide. Everything became indifferent to her the moment the dear unknown abandoned her. Sunk in a profound sadness, she mechanically tried to give pleasure to Carl by tasting some of the dishes. But feeling more inclined to cry than to eat, she asked for a cup of coffee to give her at least a little strength and physical courage. The coffee was brought to her. "'Here, senora,' said Carl. The little gentleman wished to prepare it himself in order that it might be excellent.' He seems to me like an old valet de chambre. And after all, he is not so much of a devil as he is black. I believe he is a good child at bottom, though he does not like to talk. He made me drink some brandy at least a hundred years old, the best I have ever tasted. If you are willing to try a little, it will do you more good than this coffee, however strong it may be. My good Karl. "'Go and drink what you please, and let me be quiet,' said Consuelo, "'swallowing her coffee, the quality of which she did not think of appreciating. "'Hardly had she risen from table, "'than she felt overpowered by an extraordinary heaviness. "'When Carl came to tell her that the carriage was ready, "'he found her asleep in her chair. "'Give me your arm," said she to him. "'I cannot support myself. "'I think I must have a fever.' She was so overpowered that she could only confusedly see the carriage, her new guide, and the porter of the house, whom Karl could not induce to accept anything from her. As soon as she was on the road, she slept soundly. The carriage had been arranged and provided with pillows like a bed. From this moment, Consuelo had no consciousness of anything. She knew not how long her journey lasted. She did not remark if it was day or night, if she stopped or traveled without interruption. She saw Carl once or twice at the door and comprehended neither his questions nor his affright. It seemed to her that the little man felt her pulse and made her swallow a refreshing drink, saying, It is nothing. Madam does very well. Still she experienced a vague discomfort, an unconquerable exhaustion. Her eyelids were so weighed down that she could hardly see and her thoughts were not clear enough for her to reflect upon the objects which passed before her. The more she slept, the more she wished to sleep. She did not even think to ask herself if she were ill, and she could only answer Carl in the last word she had said to him. Let me be quiet, good Karl." At last she felt somewhat more free in body and mind, and looking around her, perceived that she was lying upon an excellent bed between four vast curtains of white satin, fringed with gold. The little man of the journey, masked with black like the chevalier, was making her inhale from a bottle something which seemed to dissipate the clouds of her mind, and to replace with the clearness of day the fog in which she had been enveloped. "'Are you a physician, sir?' said she at last, with some difficulty. "'Yes, Madame Countess,' I have that honor, replied he, in a voice which did not seem entirely unknown to her. Have I been ill? Only a little indisposed, you must feel much better. I feel well, and thank you for your care. I present my respects to you and will not again appear before your ladyship unless you send for me in case of illness. Have I reached the end of my journey? Yes, madam. "'Am I free or a prisoner?' "'You are free, Madam Countess, "'in all the enclosure reserved for your habitation.' "'I understand I am in a great and beautiful prison,' said Consuelo, "'looking at her vast and light chamber, "'tapestried with white Chinese silk "'embroidered with flowers of gold, "'and relieved by magnificently sculptured and gilded woodwork. "'Could I see Carl?' "'I do not know, Madam.' I am not the master here. I retire. You have no further need of my assistance, and I am forbidden to yield to the pleasure of conversing with you. The little man in black went out, and Consuelo, still weak and drowsy, attempted to rise. The only dress she found within reach was a long robe of white woolen stuff, of a marvelously soft texture, quite like the tunic of a Roman lady. She raised it, and there fell upon the floor a billet, on which was written in letters of gold, This is the robe without stain of the neophytes. If thy soul be impure, this noble dress of innocence will become for thee the devouring tunic of Dihanara. Consuelo, accustomed to peace of conscience, to a peace perhaps too profound, smiled and put on her beautiful robe with an artless pleasure. She took up the billet to read it again, and thought it childishly emphatic. Then she went towards a rich toilet table of white marble, which supported a large glass, framed with gilded scrolls in exquisite taste. But her attention was attracted by an inscription, placed in the ornament which topped the mirror. "'If thy soul be as pure as my crystal,' thou wilt see thyself therein eternally young and beautiful. But if vice has stained thy heart, fear to see in me a severe reflection of moral ugliness. I have never been either beautiful or culpable, thought Consuelo, therefore I will use this mirror at any rate. She looked in it without fear, and did not find herself ugly. That beautiful flowing robe and her long unbound black hair gave her the aspect of a priestess of antiquity, but extreme paleness struck her. Her eyes were less pure and less brilliant than usual. Can I have become ugly, thought she at once, or would this mirror accuse me? She opened a drawer of the toilet table and found there, among a thousand refinements of luxurious taste, several articles accompanied with devices and sentences both simple and pedantic. A pot of rouge had these words engraved on its cover. Fashion and falsehood, paint does not restore to the cheek the freshness of innocence and does not efface the ravages of disorder. Exquisite perfumes with this device upon the bottle. A soul without faith, an indiscreet mouth, are like open bottles of which the precious essence escapes or is deteriorated. Finally, some white ribbons, with these words in gold among the silk. For a pure brow, the sacred fillets. For a head loaded with infamy, the rope, the punishment of slaves. Consuelo turned up her hair and complacently fastened it with those fillets in the antique manner, Then she examined with curiosity the enchanted palace into which her strange destiny had brought her. She passed into the various rooms of her rich and vast suites. A library, a music room filled with perfect instruments, numerous scores and precious manuscripts. A delicious boudoir, a little gallery ornamented with superb pictures and charming statues. It was a lodging worthy of a queen in its richness, of an artist in its taste, and of a nun in its chasteness. Consuelo, was astonished at this sumptuous and delicate hospitality, put off until another time the work of examining in detail and with a quiet mind all the symbols concealed in the choice of the books, the objects of art, and the pictures which ornamented this sanctuary. The curiosity of learning in what part of the world this wonderful residence was situated caused her to abandon the interior for the exterior. She approached a window, but before raising the silk blind which covered it, she read yet this sentence. If the thought of evil be in thy heart, thou art not worthy to contemplate the divine spectacle of nature. If virtue dwell in thy soul, look, And bless God who opens for thee the entrance to a terrestrial paradise. She hastened to open the window in order to see if the aspect of the country corresponded to the proud promises of the inscription. It was a terrestrial paradise in truth, and Consuelo thought she was in a dream. The garden, planted in the English fashion, a thing very rare at that period, but ornamented in its details with Dutch nicety, presented the charming perspectives, the magnificent shades, the fresh lawns, the free developments of a natural landscape, at the same time with the exquisite neatness, the abundant and sweet flowers, the fine sanded walks, the crystalline waters, which characterize a garden cultivated with intelligence and with love. Beneath those beautiful trees... Lofty barriers of a narrow valley, sown or rather carpeted with flowers, and crossed by graceful and limpid streams, rose a sublime horizon of blue mountains, of varied forms and imposing summits. The country was unknown to Consuelo. As far as her eye could reach, she found no indication to reveal any particular country in Germany, where there are so many noble sights and beautiful mountains. Only the flowers being more advanced, and the climate warmer than in Prussia, showed it that she had made some steps towards the south. Oh, my good canon, where are you, thought Consuelo, as she contemplated the woods of white lilacs and the hedges of roses, the ground covered with narcissuses, hyacinths, and violets. Oh, Frederick of Prussia, may you be blessed for having taught me, by long privations and cruel ennuis, to enjoy, as I ought, the delights of such a refuge. And you, all-powerful invisibles, retain me eternally in this sweet captivity. I consent with my whole soul, especially if the Chevalier. Consuelo did not complete the expression of her desire. Since awaking from her lethargy, she had not before thought of the unknown. That burning remembrance was aroused in her mind, and made her reflect upon the threatening words inscribed on the walls, on all the furniture of the magic palace, and even on the ornaments with which she had so ingenuously arrayed herself. End of the First Volume End of Chapter Twenty-Three